Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. It's day 11 of the Senate impeachment trial, and it could be close to the final day. We'll soon get long-awaited answers about whether the Senate will call witnesses. The Magic 8-Ball says, don't count on it. And if not, the trial is expected to wrap up quickly. The President Trump has awaited the verdict by tweeting furiously, unveiling a Middle East peace proposal, and campaigning for 2020. Because impeachment trial or no, we're still on the brink of an election. This hour on point, another historic week. We'll have our reporters' roundtable on all that news and more this hour. But to start off, we wanted to spend some time on impeachment with Peter Baker. He's chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, and he's exceptionally well-versed on this topic. He covered the Clinton impeachment trial 21 years ago, and he's the co-author of Impeachment and American History. Peter Baker, welcome back to On Point. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander, a Republican— uh, something of a moderate, seen as an ally of Mitch McConnell, uh, has been watched closely for what he might do, what he might do for witnesses, what he, where he might come down on the verdict. He was seen reading your book on the floor <laughs> of the Senate. What takeaways might he have gotten from the lessons that you and your co-author John Meacham elucidated in the book? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, the book is uh, it's a history of impeachment going back to what the framers were thinking about when they first uh, came up with that clause in the Constitution. Then it tra- takes you through the Andrew Johnson trial, the Nixon experience and the Clinton trial. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different lessons you could get from it. If you read Jeff Engel, he wrote this part about the framers, his part. You read that the framers were very worried about uh, presidents who would be entangled in foreign affairs and who would be trying to corrupt elections. So you might take from that that this is something that has been on their minds when they came up with the impeachment clause to begin with. Or you might read about the uh, cases that we've had since then and learn out of Johnson and, and Clinton for instance, that party line impeachments don't don't succeed, that in fact there has to be buy-in by at least some members of the president's party, whichever party and whichever president you're talking about, to get to that magic two-thirds number you're going to need in the Senate for conviction. That didn't happen with Johnson and Clinton. It doesn't look like it's going to happen with President Trump. Um, are there any parallels that you see or are there just differences more stark with how uh, the Clinton trial played out uh, in the Senate low these uh, two decades ago? Well, there are similarities and differences, obviously, right? Sometimes if you close your eyes, you hear all of the same arguments you heard 21 years ago. Uh, They're just uh, everybody's on the other side, right? Last time around, it was the Republicans talking very sternly about the rule of law and holding presidents accountable and why the Constitution created impeachment in the first place. And it was the Democrats who were talking about partisan witch hunts and bad process and unfair, uh, you know, persecutions of the president. Now everybody's on the other side. The substance, of course, of the allegations are substantially different. The president last time was accused of a felony, uh, but it was about perjury and obstruction involving a sexual harassment lawsuit where he lied about an affair he had had that didn't seem to involve the use of his of his office, but it was a criminal offense. This time, you have a president accused of using his office for personal gain, of leveraging a foreign country to help him against his domestic political rivals. They didn't include a specific crime in the Articles of Impeachment. That's what the Republicans have focused on. But they are talking about his use of power, his use of the office, which is something the framers were very, very concerned about when they created this uh, clause to begin with. 
you know, it's funny because it, it's worth juxtaposing. And it sounds like you're talking a little bit about how there's certain kinds of inversion but s- symmetry politically with what you saw last time ago. But there's an asymmetry in terms of the severity of the allegations. Uh, last June, the chairwoman of the Federal Election Committee, Ellen Weintraub, put out a statement you know, where she pointed out, let me make something 100 percent clear to the American public and anyone running for public office. It is illegal for any person to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with the U.S. election. This is not a novel concept. Electoral intervention from foreign governments has been considered unacceptable since the beginnings of our nation. Juxtapose that with what Senator Alexander put out last night, his impeachment witness statement saying he's not going to vote for any witnesses and that it's clear to him. He says there's no need for more evidence to prove the president asked Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and his son Hunter. He said this on television. He cites two occasions. Then he says again, There is no need for more evidence to conclude the president withheld United States aid, at least in part, to pressure Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. The House managers approved this with what they call, quote, a mountain of overwhelming evidence. He goes on to say it was inappropriate for the president to ask a foreign leader to investigate his political opponent and withhold the United States aid to incur that investigations. When elected officials inappropriately interfere with such investigations, it undermines the principle of equal justice under the law. And then says the Senate doesn't have the power to remove the president from office or ban him for actions that are inappropriate. It seems to frame this uh, – Alexander, not necessarily joined by all of his colleagues on the Senate uh, Republican side, unless seems to frame this as starkly uh, inappropriate uh, but not rising the level of, uh, of breaking the law as, as described by the chairwoman at the time of the election commission. Right. He's accepting the factual case that the House managers have made. He's saying that they proved it. They, we, we know what President Trump did. The question is what we do about it. And in his case, he's saying he doesn't think it rises to the level of a removable offense. In that case, in this argument, he is mirroring what the Democrats said 21 years ago. What 21 years ago, many Democrats said is, yeah, President Clinton did something wrong. And yeah, even some of them thought he lied under oath and obstructed justice. They just didn't think it rose to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, you can argue they were wrong and 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 you could argue that Lamar Alexander's wrong or whatever you want. But the argument that president did something wrong, but not that wrong is the same formulation anyway that we heard uh, 21 years ago. The difference is what's interesting about this is up until now, you really haven't heard too many Republicans trying to thread that needle that way because Mm -hmm. this president, unlike President Clinton, won't allow them. President Clinton admitted he did something wrong. He just didn't say he committed a crime. He says, I shouldn't have had the affair. I shouldn't have lied about it. And I apologize. President Trump has taken the opposite approach. He said, no, nothing wrong, nothing at all. It's a perfect call. And that has forced Republicans to take an all or nothing kind of position here. Lamar Alexander is saying, I'm retiring. I'm not going to take that all or nothing thing. I'm not going to exonerate him and pretend that this is a perfect call and pretend he did nothing wrong, even though I don't think it necessarily rises to the level of removing him from office. We'll see if other Republicans follow that formula or or end up sticking with President Trump's line of, you know, complete exoneration. One of the differences also, it seems to me, is the question of, you know, you're getting calls from inside the House in a way you didn't during the Clinton impeachment, uh, which I covered, too, with you a little bit. that is, you have somebody of the – not only all these figures that have testified on the House side, critical members of the administration, one of whom a uh, senior aide to Mike Pence just departed a little ahead of time uh, this week. But uh, John Bolton, the president's former handpicked uh, – one of his many, but former handpicked national security advisors, uh, clearly having something to say and wanting to be said. Uh, support for witnesses the Senate impeachment trial in recent polls, Quinnipiac, 75 percent of Americans, Monmouth, 80. You see Reuters, CNN, AP, The Washington Post between 69 and 80 percent. And even the plurality of Republicans wanting it, John Bolton seems to have significant things to say about this, suggesting that actually 
this is more than inappropriateness. Um, how has he changed or to what degree has he not changed uh, our understanding of the significance of these events over the course of this past week? Well, we, we, we of course, uh, published a, a story about his unpublished manuscript in the New York Times. We haven't heard his voice yet. We have not actually heard him say to a camera or in a, in a formal setting of some sort what happened and explained to us, much less had him cross-examined by the other side to see if the story holds up. And it would be such an important thing to hear from him. We, we did not hear from, from really key people in this uh, uh, episode. We didn't hear from Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, who publicly told a press briefing in the White House that, yes, the president did condition aid on an election uh, investigation of the Democrats from 2016 by Ukraine, then tried to take it back. We did not hear from Rudy Giuliani, who's been all over TV, giving various versions of his events, sometimes contradictory, but never cross-examined by a, a lawyer of any sort. We did not hear from Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo or a lot of other people. And that's something of a difference in 21 years ago. Ken Starr, whatever else you want to say about him, if you like him or dislike him, uh, pr provided the House a complete investigation that had been interviewed everybody. So by the time it got to the Senate, there was new, new, no new evidence to have. Here, we've got new evidence, and we although, don't necessarily know have, the whole... Although, Peter, they did have three witnesses interviewed they had three uh, witnesses, by video yes. during that trial as well. Exactly. They had three witnesses, even though they had all of the evidence from those three witnesses previously by Ken Starr. And the argument then was, yeah, that's fine. These three witnesses testified to the grand jury, but never in public, never in a way that people so let's could hear, it hear their voices, right? And never, and never challenged by any other lawyer, right? They, they, only Ken Starr's team interviewed them in the grand jury, not the president's uh, or the House manager. So their argument was, yes, we have to hear from witnesses, even though we know what they're going to say because you need to sort of test their credibility to understand what happened here. We have witnesses who haven't been hurt at all. And that's the difference. That's a significant difference here. It's, it feels to me as though in some ways the, the stone wall, if you like, uh, held. That is the president successfully uh, didn't invoke executive privilege but invoked kinds of privileges and immunities that – did enough to prevent them uh, from allowing these senior figures, the the Pompeos of the world, Secretary of State, uh, Mick Mulvaney, you mentioned the acting chief of staff. He's still acting, right? Uh, the acting he chief of acting staff. You know, months in. <laughs> uh, it's an impressive thespian career. And so, you know, that these major <laughs> figures in the administration have one after another not been allowed to come forward, even as other people who were dissonant voices did on the House side, uh, more perhaps with a bit more voluntary uh, uh, appearance there. Yeah, and it's interesting. Would they actually, if they testify, would they change the fundamental understanding of what happened? That's an interesting question. Or, or if you are like Lamar Alexander, say, look, I accept that he did something wrong. I just don't think that it, 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 it rises to that level. Would their testimony change somebody's mind? Do they have something to tell us or these documents, if we had seen them, that would give us even more information that would convince people uh, that this was a different character than they already think it is? Peter Baker, when you talk to people on Capitol Hill, particularly when you talk to uh, significant Republicans, was there the fear that uh, by Republicans who feel that their fates are aligned with the president, that if more were heard, it was more likely to be harder to resist yielding ground, ceding ground to the House, uh, the House manager's arguments to some degree about the seriousness of the violation? All right. I believe we've uh, just lost. That was uh, Peter Baker. He's the chief uh, White House uh, correspondent for The New York Times. We're appreciative of his times. Uh, I first got to know him when I was a cub reporter. He was far more experienced, uh, both covering uh, the Clinton impeachment trial uh, uh, in uh, 1998, a little over two decades ago. Uh, in the coming uh, – 
uh, segment. We'll be joined by two other uh, excellent reporters who are also covering uh, impeachment as well as other issues. We'll be joined by Julie Pace. She's the Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press and host of Ground Game, the AP's political podcast. And we, I'll be joined here in studio in New York by Hayes Brown. He's senior reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News, host of BuzzFeed's Impeachment Today podcast. And we'll be incorporating some of the call-outs that, uh, that we got uh, from listeners about some of the questions they had uh, raised by the impeachment uh, trial. I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. We're talking about this historic week in the news, impeachment, a new Middle East peace plan, the Democratic primaries around the corner, and we have a pair of terrific guests, as I said, to help us make sense of it all. Julie Pace joins us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. She's the Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. She's also host of the AP's political podcast, Ground Game. Julie, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And Hayes Brown's here with me in studio in New York. He's senior reporter and editor for BuzzFeed, as well as the host of their impeachment podcast, Impeachment Today. Hayes, welcome. Glad to be here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the politics uh, behind what I've been talking about with Peter Baker uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, what are the pressures on the – I mean I guess we really should think first about the sort of uh, Republicans who seemed uh, most squishy or most mm-hmm. open to the idea of listening to their colleagues across the aisle on some of the arguments about witnesses, much less uh, the, uh, the question of the ultimate verdict. Uh, what were the pressures on them, even as I said earlier uh, in the show, so many Americans, you know, a clear majority of Americans, 60-some to 80 percent of Americans wanted to hear witnesses and wanted the trial to go a little bit further digging in? So I think that part of it is that some of these uh, senators that we were looking at are up for re-election in this fall. And so I think that a lot of them had to consider, well, what is more important to me? Do we want it so that uh, we are supported by the Republican base within our state or do, or do we want to try and draw in independent and moderate voters? Who is our audience right now? And for many of them, including Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Cory Gardner of Colorado, they decided to stick with the president. Now, for some of them uh, that we've been looking at... you know, So walk through, just for the moment, walk through the logic on that. Mm-hmm. Colorado is a state that's breaking purple mm-hmm. these days and it's even purple to blue, right, to, to somewhat Democratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Tillerson's been kind of in North Carolina, a state that had been somewhat bluish, now is a little bit more red. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what are the differing tensions that led them to the same result, which is I'm staying with the president on this. I don't want to hear what might be inconvenient. Well, a couple of things. I mean, on the one hand, everyone who is holding public office in either the House or the Senate who's a Republican is afraid of a primary from their right. They don't want to be seen as someone who's, you know, can be branded as a traitor to the party at this point. And so, you know, we have people who, if they have more coming out via these witnesses, then they know that it could, that there's probably nothing exculpatory coming for the president. If there was, the White House's lawyers probably would have put it forward by now instead of just relying on the House's case. And so in their, you know, internal logic, I mean, I haven't spoken to any of them, but I can assume that their thinking is, well, if we have to have this trial, then let's get it over with as quickly as possible so that we don't have to have these embarrassing things come out while, you know, we're sitting there and then having to vote to acquit the president, because if we don't, we will again be branded as, you know, party traitors. And it's interesting how in this impeachment trial, it's been really party over top of uh, control of your institution. It hasn't been about congressional power like the framers really intended. It's been about the party, uh, the power of your party, the Republican Party in this case. Uh, Julie Pates, let me ask you a uh, question. When you look at uh, two, uh, two prominent uh, female, as it turns out, senators, uh, 
Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, Susan Collins in Maine. Susan Collins came out in favor of uh, some witnesses. Uh, Murkowski seemed at least sympathetic to the notion, seemed to be going back and forth on it. I don't believe as we're speaking now that she's formally announced where she's going, although it looks as though the die may well have been cast anyway, uh, giving her a little more leeway here. Why would it play out differently in those states, which are also kind of sw- uh, you know, center-right states that are moderate to conservative in some ways? Uh, why is it that both of them, you know, both of them had to fight hard to keep their job and it looks like Collins is a really tough race this year. Uh, why does it play out differently for them than for a Tillis and a Gardner? Sure, sure. Collins is in a really tough race uh, in November. Both Collins and Murkowski, though, have really made uh, a reputation as independents. Part of why they get elected in their states is because of this reputation for bucking their party on occasion. They, they vote with Republicans the majority of the time, but in a couple of high-profile instances, including on health care votes, they have sided with Democrats. And that actually has played to their benefit. And they've seen, uh, they have seen positive political feedback in, in doing so. And so for a, for a Collins, she's trying to preserve that reputation. She took a hit with some independence after her vote in support of the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. And this is almost an attempt by her to say, no, I really am still that that more independent minded senator that you that you think of me as. So she's on on a vote that actually looks like it will be pretty low cost for her because it doesn't actually push Republicans over the threshold on witnesses. She is trying to to preserve that independent reputation. Murkowski is such an interesting senator to me. You know, you'll remember uh, a few years ago when she was running, she actually had to get back on on the ballot through write-ins and the, yep. the Republican leadership really moved against her in that in that moment she had lost a primary they decided to not to not back her in that write-in bid so she is this rare senator who does not feel beholden to her party leadership in any way she huh. she goes back to that moment sometimes and and she can point to the fact that McConnell wasn't there for her he decided to move on so she doesn't really owe him anything and it has given her a measure of actually true independence that she that she leverages at times and in some ways given that again that the 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 die seems to be cast that it'll be interesting to see some of these very centrist democrats uh, joe manchin of west virginia doug jones in alabama very tough odds for him to win re-election uh, against uh, possibly former uh, senator and attorney general jeff sessions down there uh and cinema out in in arizona you know who, who sort of seems to dance to her own tune and figure out her own path in, in, a, in a new way as she's newly in the Senate. Be interesting to watch them as well. We did a call out to listeners on social media yesterday to hear your questions about the week's top stories. Uh, we got a call from Audrey uh, in Massachusetts. She had a question inspired by one of the president's lawyers uh, defense arguments. That's Alan Dershowitz. He made this argument on Thursday. I think a question in response to Dershowitz's claim that the president acting in his own interest is in the interest of the nation. Is it not Congress and the Senate's job to judge that judgment, that judgment call, and determine if there really was a choice by the president in the best interest of the nation. That's the senator's job right now as they consider the evidence. So I want to play the clip for you guys, uh, what Dershowitz had to say. It's a Harvard emeritus law professor, of course. He joined the president's defense team. This happened over the course of the nine hours of testimony uh, or the nine hours of, uh, of arguments being made on the Senate floor Wednesday. And Dershowitz argued that even if President Trump withheld Ukrainian aid for a political favor that could benefit him in the 2020 race against Joe Biden, that would not constitute an impeachable offense. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. 
your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Now, that caused something of an uproar. The lead House manager for the Democrats, Adam Schiff of California, responded to Dershowitz's theory later that day on the Senate floor. If you say you can't hold a president accountable in an election year where they're trying to cheat in that election, then you are giving them carte blanche. So all quid pros are not the same. Some are legitimate and some are corrupt, and you don't need to be a mind reader to figure out which is which. For one thing, you can ask John Bolton. Now, Dershowitz tried to clean things up on Twitter the next day. He wrote that he meant, quote, only that seeking help in election is not necessarily corrupt and insisted he had been taken out of context. But there are two questions that arise, and I'll start with you, uh, Hayes Brown. Uh, The two questions, I guess, first are, does Dershowitz have a point? Mm. Uh, Is it in some ways uh, okay for presidents to do things that they think will benefit themselves uh, politically Mm -hmm. and not have that be an impeachable event, event, even if that influences things he does with the authority of president of the United States? I think he has a point, but he twists it in a way to be almost unrecognizable. He is correct. And the president's defense, you know, really leaned on this point, especially after the Sunday reporting from The New York Times about John Bolton in his new book, that everything that the House said about Ukraine and the aid being held was right. They really leaned on this idea that uh, you can have mixed motives. You can have two or more things happening in your head to try and influence you. Now, Dershowitz is correct in saying that, yes, politics always plays a factor into how uh, presidents make their policy decisions. What can be supported? What will play well to the American people? What can, you know, help me uh, in figuring out how I can get a second term? But where Dershowitz goes wrong is that he says that this can mean that there's nothing that can be impeachable as long as you are acting in what you see as the national interest by getting yourself reelected. And in doing so, I think that even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who might be like championing that argument from beyond the grave, given you know his activities during World War II, he would himself be like, I think that's a bit too far, sir. <laughs> because in saying so, Dershowitz was basically making the case that as long as you can at least claim that what you were doing was to for a political benefit to get yourself reelected, not, you know, for money or for whatever, even though Trump has, you know, these foreign emoluments, uh, things happening in the background that are earning him money, as long as you can say it's not about that, then he's fine. And Julie Pace, let's go back to Artie's original question, which is the question of, isn't this something that the senators get to decide for themselves? How is it that it is uh, off limits to them to do this? Why is it that it is, uh, if not specifically delineated in those exact terms, the idea that abuse of power, which is something that Dershowitz continues to maintain, is not within uh, the, the, the powers of the Senate to decide is a target of removal? Uh, what do you make of Audrey's original question? Why is that not something within the bailiwick of the, of the Senate itself? We have learned so much during this process about just how little actually is delineated about the impeachment process and what the actual uh, role of the senators is, what they should consider, what they shouldn't consider. And certainly the argument from the from the Trump team is that abuse of power does not fall within within that that rubric. But I think ultimately, if you if you look at the impeachment process and you say it is going to be senators that are going to decide what happens to a president, then you could very easily argue that that this is within their 
power to decide. That is the Democratic argument, that this is exactly what impeachment was created for, to deal with a situation when a president of the United States may have abused the power of his office. What I think is really interesting as we see uh, this process coming to a close is how the Republicans are dealing with this. The Lamar Alexander statement in particular essentially says that the House has proved that the president did abuse the power of his office to some degree, says at least in part he did withhold military aid to Ukraine to seek an investigation of political rivals. Alexander says he just doesn't think that is an impeachable offense. And it creates, I think, a lot of a a lot of gray area here about what kind of abuse does rise to the level of impeachable. What is simply inappropriate? What uh, requires the Senate to take that extraordinary step to remove the president? Uh, We will end up, I believe, with more questions about that than answers when when this process reaches its final conclusion. And and we have a number of listeners who have weighed in uh, uh, responding to our call for feedback on this. Uh, Listeners, uh, Ryan J. Martin writes, uh, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, I guess, unless you're doing stock investments. If Trump wins a second term, it's likely there will be another impeachable offense or at least perceived by half the government. Is there now a higher bar legally or politically for new articles of impeachment against Trump or future president? Uh, Listener Ashley writes, what precedence does this impeachment process set for future presidents? Uh, you know, Hayes Brown, I see you, you, you're sort of interested in weighing in here. What does this do to the nature of what the powers are for the Senate to set certain kinds of boundaries on executive uh, actions? I think that what's interesting is that it doesn't change the powers of the Senate. It changes what pow- what the Senate is willing to do with those powers. A future Senate could very well completely flip and say, you know what, actually, the previous Senate was wrong. This is well within the frame of what we should take care of care of at, under an impeachment trial. Uh, something that the House manager said that really has stuck with me is that all, for all the arguments that you need a criminal, uh, you know, actual crime for an impeachment and removal, it's not in the Constitution or anywhere that you, you know, go to jail or punish for said criminal act. You are just removed for office. She referred to it as a political punishment for a political crime. And I think that's something that should have, you know, had resonance with the senators uh, on the Republican side, but apparently it did not. Well, it's interesting you talk about the powers the Senate has. One thing we noticed was Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, uh, playing this very by the book, very carefully and austerely in some ways, but also not allowing Republican senators, particularly Rand Paul of uh, Kentucky, to slip the name of the initial whistleblower onto the record. He's, he just simply said he would not do that. Democrats may wish to delay uh, you know, uh, votes on uh, on the witnesses, on, on the president's acquittal, which seems likely to happen in short order. At the same time, even someone as senior as Dick Durbin, high in the Senate hierarchy for the Democrats, has said they're pretty much resigned to the Republicans having their sway. I want to switch. We only have a few minutes left before the end of break. I want to switch, uh, talk a little bit about, it's not utterly unrelated, uh, a little bit about uh, Mike Pompeo. Uh, on uh, Over the course of the past week, we have learned about my colleague, uh, the All Things Considered and, and noted uh, national security uh, chorus, uh, host and national security correspondent Mary Louise Kelly. She had an interview with uh, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He didn't enjoy some of her questions about Iran. And when she turned to Ukraine, as she had uh, signaled she would in conversations with his aides ahead of time, uh, he became notably testy and subsequently uh, off uh, microphone, uh, swore at her and, and derided her and then claimed that she had lied to him, although he did so without evidence and she disproved that. On Tuesday, President Trump joked about that interview. Uh, during the interview, Pompeo uh, had become angry. When it was over, he not only cursed her, he insisted that uh, Kelly locate Ukraine on an unmarked map. And of course, our great Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. 
Whoa. Oh, that's impressive. That was very impressive, Mike. That reporter couldn't have done too good a job on you yesterday, huh? I think you did a good job on her, actually. Now, that Pompeo embracing kind of a Trumpian approach to dealing with difficult questions by personalizing things and going after it, uh, it's also part of a pattern we're seeing in Washington. Reporters during the impeachment trial were sort of penned away from uh, access to major lawmakers uh, during much of that. But Pompeo himself goes back to Ukraine this week in the midst of the trial, the first trip of a senior U.S. official to that country since the start of the investigations that led to impeachment. Here Pompeo is speaking earlier today about the U.S. commitment to diplomatic relations with Ukraine as well as security assistance uh, uh, and, of course, as we've been saying, the impeachment inquiry into President Trump centered on military aid to Ukraine. We talk about the assistance. That's important. Uh, it's certainly helpful for the Ukrainian people. It, it makes a difference for the United States as well. It's to our benefit as well. But what really matters is the relationship that's developing between the two countries, and uh, political and diplomatically, uh, commercially and economically. Uh, these are the things that benefit each of our two countries. Julie Pace, in the minute that we have left, talk a little bit about where all this leaves our relationship with Ukraine and Russia uh, after this huge scandal that's consumed much of the past year. I think Ukraine is wondering that same question right now. Pompeo Mm -hmm. is certainly there uh, to offer some reassurance, to say we really do care about you. The assistance will continue to flow. It is notable that in uh, the uh, the off mic portion of his interview with your colleague, he said that no Americans care about Ukraine, which seems to go against the message he's trying to deliver today. Look, I think the the proof will be in how the administration treats Ukraine in the coming months. Do they send more military aid? Does Zelensky get his Oval Office? meeting. That is a big question still unanswered. It's amazing. Even after all this time, the one thing that everything was predicated on, they got the aid, haven't gotten the meeting. We're discussing the week in the news. The world keeps spinning despite what's happening on Capitol Hill. So the news involves more than impeachment. Up next, a new Middle East peace proposal and the 2020 election. I'm David Folkenflik and this is On Point. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. In other news this week, the European Parliament formally approved the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union, a sing Auld Lang Syne, as they did. The deal will become final at midnight tonight, Brussels time. More details emerged about the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, the Laker great, as well as his daughter and seven others on Sunday. Authorities say the helicopter was missing a radar-based device that might have warned the pilot of mountains obscured by fog. A bitter reminder that aviation manufacture and regulation were revolutionized after the fatal airplane crash that took the life of Notre Dame football coach Newt Rockney in 1931. And the State Department issued a travel advisory warning Americans not to travel to China because of the coronavirus. The World Health Organization declared the outbreak a global emergency, which is a formal expression of concern that the disease could ravage countries with weaker health systems and protocols. We have a sharp panel staying with us to help keep on top of all the news this week. Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press, and Hayes Brown, Senior Reporter and Editor from BuzzFeed. Julie Pace, I want to turn to you for a moment about the coronavirus. You oversee a big staff that helps cover all kinds of news in, in Washington and, and politically around the country. Uh, the coronavirus, not per se a political issue. Talk to me a little bit about the U.S. government's response to this uh, seeming growing uh, global health concern, I guess, morphing into something of a crisis. 
Sure. This this is definitely a storyline that is uh, that we're keeping a close eye on here. Uh, if you remember, you know, back to SARS or Ebola or some of these other global health crises, you know, oftentimes it doesn't feel like it's a major issue in the United States until it is. And so U.S. officials right now are trying to do two things. Uh, on the one hand, they're trying to take some real, precaution, real precautions in travel advisories uh, to China for Americans, evacuating Americans who are who were in Wuhan, which is the Chinese city that is the center of this epidemic. On the other hand, they're trying to be realistic and and make clear to people that uh, this is not an urgent health crisis in the United States right now. You'll remember with Ebola, uh, there was a sense of real panic uh, in a lot of corners of this country, even though cases in the United States uh, were quite limited. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in in right now. So they're they're both trying to uh, be restrained in their in their uh, public relations response while also taking real precautions to try to ensure that this doesn't become more of a public health problem in the U.S. And as before we move forward on this, Julie, you know, the Trump administration has taken a hit, I think, uh, from its critics anyway, uh, and with some seeming justification for often uh, cutting certain kinds of uh, health research for at times uh, politicizing certain kinds of scientific and medical issues. In this instance, how do you see this government and this uh, the, the health-related agencies responding? Uh, you know, compared to the way you might have seen under the Obama or George W. Bush administrations. The the response from the actual agencies themselves has been quite robust. They have moved quickly, uh, both, as I mentioned, with evacuating Americans who were in Wuhan, with with issuing guidance and and travel warnings. But your point is well taken. I mean, this is an administration that has, over the last three years, cut back funding for a lot of these same agencies, cut back scientific research and discredited, quite frankly, uh, the the work of of scientists. So it is always striking in these moments to see that the, the agency Agencies that we count on, the agencies that are at the front lines, are also dealing with real budget cuts uh, and real constraints from from this president and his administration. Interestingly, uh, the Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross made some comments uh, saying, "Well, you know, it could be some good financial opportunities for American companies here." So, not you know, I guess a silver lining in every uh, uh, health crisis cloud, <laughs> as long as it starts abroad. I want to turn uh, a little bit to something that the president has hailed as a major development. Uh, President Trump presented uh, his Middle East plan at the White House on Tuesday uh, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at his side. I want this deal to be a great deal for the Palestinians. It has to be. Today's agreement is a historic opportunity for the Palestinians to finally achieve an independent state of their very own. After 70 years of little progress, this could be the last opportunity they will ever have. Now, Trump at that point speaking, of course, with the full authority of the uh, of the presidency, uh, he was standing next to the prime minister of Israel. That said, Netanyahu has been unable to form a government after a couple of recent elections and is under indictment in Israel. Trump also met with Netanyahu's leading political rival, Benny Gantz. No Palestinian leader has attended any of these White House events. And indeed, uh, the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mohammed Abbas, uh, basically said this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hayes Brown, uh, how – this has been something that's been in the works for a while. It's been promised for mm-hmm. a couple of years now. Uh, how consequential is this proposal? So here's the thing. Uh, it's both very consequential and not very much at all. And let me break that down a little. On the one hand, Trump and Netanyahu are both politicians who very much understand – the power of spectacle and optics. And they both needed that at this moment. Trump 
impeachment trial going on. Netanyahu just, you know, like you said, indicted for corruption charges. And so both of them needed like a public affairs win. But unfortunately for both of them, uh, the trial balloon that was this plan that's been pushed to get put together by Jared Kushner over the last few years kind of went over like a lead balloon uh, on the from the you know Middle Eastern countries, the Arab majority countries surrounding Israel, none of them really seemed very enthused about this plan. None of them like none of them dunked on it very hard, but none of them seemed to praise it very hard. These very soft, like eh, it's fine. I guess we'd like some real negotiations. Uh, on the flip side, you have a terrible rollout from Jared Kushner going on television saying that you know the Palestinians have you know wasted every opportunity they've ever had. Yeah, let, me, let me just uh, intercede here just to give you the line that he said and let you mm-hmm. go on. But he said, you have 5 million Palestinians who are really trapped because of bad leadership. So what we've done is we create an opportunity for their leadership either to seize or not. If they screw up this opportunity, which again, they have a perfect track record of missing opportunities. If they screw this up, I think that they will have a very hard time looking the international community in the face saying that they have victims and they have rights. Yeah, and that uh, did not go over well with many, you know, observers in the U.S., uh, Palestinians, etc. And so on the flip side, you have Netanyahu, and he had promised uh, ahead of these March 2nd elections, the third elections in a year, that he would be annexing parts of the West Bank and, you know, uh, pulling that into – and settlements and pulling that fully into Israeli territory. And he said – right after this plan was announced that he'd get started on that right away. But the White House quickly put the kibosh on that, saying, actually, no, you should not be doing that before this election. You need to form a government before you take these unilateral actions. Netanyahu had hoped that in doing so, he would have pushed his, you know, odds of election forward. And so that fundamental clash shows, you know, that this plan uh, it has some flaws in it. Julie Pace, nonetheless, I was struck there was not the uh, an outcry uh, in among Arab nations about this. There was not a, a routine condemnation uh, decrying the president for lack of seriousness or something, even though this was seen as basically something worked out with Israelis as opposed to even if some Palestinian figures were consulted, uh, you know, an idea that these were equal partners in, in trying to achieve uh, progress on, on this ongoing conflict. It was a pretty muted response from some of the Arab nations. But in that, uh, we saw the weakness of this plan, because what the administration has been trying to do here, because the Palestinians have not been at the table in any of these discussions and the White House has been exclusively working with the Israelis on this. What the White House was trying to also do, though, was build some pressure on the Palestinians uh, by bringing Arab nations along and, and, and hoping that the Arab nations would push the Palestinians to the table, tell them this is the best deal you're going to get. This is your best opportunity. And we didn't see that. And the fact that the Arab nations didn't didn't buy into the White House strategy really uh, signals that this is not going anywhere, that this this is a dead on arrival plan. Wow. Uh, I, I had not realized that, that it was seen that way. You know, there, there are ways in which, uh, you know, the Israelis, as Hayes had been saying, had been signaling, we're just going to make this happen if they agree to it or not. You don't see that playing out. I, I do not see that playing out. I mean, you do have to get the Palestinians to to come to the table at some point if you want to if you want to move this forward. And again, a lot of the work that Jared Kushner has been doing, you'll remember he was he was in the region doing an economic summit. You had Arab nations that were represented there. A lot of the work that he has been doing behind the scenes has been to build some support in, in the Arab community to try to push the Palestinians uh, to take to take this road to talks. And and we're not seeing that pressure, at least publicly at this point. All right, let's turn from the Middle East to the American Midwest. Uh, let's look all eyes on Iowa, the uh, Cornhusker state. No, or is that Nebraska? That's Nebraska. God, you know, that's not good. Forgive me, my Iowan friends. Uh, 
turn our eyes to Iowa a little bit and look at the caucuses here. It seems to me as though uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, a, a lot of fluidity among support for a bunch of candidates. Bernie Sanders remaining strong. Joe Biden uh, still there. Uh, uh, hey, is it your sense that the Senate trial has affected the ability of senators actually to get their word out, or is is that more of a distraction that that sort of political pros talk about? In reality, they all have organizations. They're all putting money on TV, and it's you know it's fine. I think personally that it's fine, especially for the top t- the top four candidates, uh, two of whom are in the Senate, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders. I think that the, from, for the most part, they've been OK. They, like you said, they have money. They have ads on the air. They have very strong and robust uh, campaign operations. And given the fact that Iowa is so weird and with its caucus system, you have to be there. You have to move <laughs> around. You have to be bullied by your neighbors into where you stand by the end of the night. Uh, I think that they will be OK. And they also, they have very strong surrogates out there. Uh, Congress, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Costa, blah, AOC, sorry about that. Uh, AOC has been out there campaigning for Bernie. You have uh, Julian Castro out there for Elizabeth Warren. So they have been, you know, they've had, you know, work being done while they've been trapped in Washington for this trial. And Julie Pace, you know, the, the idea has been that you've had uh, one major moderate Democrat and one major uh, you know, Democratic socialist uh, neck and neck. That, of course, being the former vice president, Joe Biden, the current senator, Bernie Sanders, as Hayes was mentioning. Uh, does that seem likely to hold up? Are there uh, peculiarities about the caucus system that make you question the ability to discern this? Or do, you, do your people on the ground see some movement uh, in, in where affinities are beginning to lie? Oh, there are so many peculiarities about the caucus process that yeah, makes right. this really hard to, to figure out. Uh, I'll, I'll try to walk it through in, in, a, in as simple uh, of a way as I can uh, to answer your question, which is that it is really hard to predict, and that's because the caucus process makes it difficult to predict. Bernie Sanders is really hoping that when voters walk into the door of the caucuses and lay down their initial preference, who they like at the very start of the caucus, that he can come away with overwhelming support. But... If your candidate doesn't get 15 percent in that precinct, they don't become viable. They can switch sides. And that's what makes this so unpredictable. You could have Bernie Sanders uh, leading the initial preference. But if all of the Andrew Yang supporters or the Amy Klobuchar supporters uh, or supporters for some of those lower tier candidates switch over to Joe Biden, to Elizabeth Warren, to Pete Buttigieg, it could really bolster their standing. So this is this is a pretty wild process. Uh, I think you're going to see candidates uh, coming out of Iowa declaring victory and momentum regardless of what the actual results results show. Uh, But Iowa never makes it easy for us. And talk about – there was talk this week about the idea that uh, former Vice President Biden and Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota might be uh, striking some sort of interesting alliance. Julie Pace, what's that about and how real is that? (laughs) Yeah, and this goes to the the point I'm making about the second choice. You know, these candidates, uh, from what we've heard, this is not a a formal arrangement. Uh, This is this was not sanctioned by the senior leadership of the Biden campaign to make this overture to Klobuchar. But we also know that there are a lot of conversations happening right now um, uh, among staffers on these campaigns about how to handle a situation where perhaps Sanders looks like he's in the lead overwhelmingly in a in a caucus precinct and, and a Biden. 
Biden needs support from some of these non-viable candidates. So there's a lot of strategy. When you talk to voters in Iowa, they are also pretty steeped in this strategy. I I talked to an Amy Klobuchar supporter the last time I was out in Iowa who said, I'm going to be with Amy on the first ballot, but I don't know where I'm going to be. I'm still looking at Biden. I'm still looking at Pete. They are very aware of the complications of this process and and, and very aware that their second choice is potentially more more valuable than their first choice. I'm looking forward to that next indie band to emerge from Iowa State. Overture to Klobuchar. <laughs> Someone should make it show. Uh, Hayes, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been described by a lot, in a lot of interviews I've seen as a second choice for a lot of folks in Iowa. What's her uh, profile as in this final waning few days before, before Iowans cast their votes in, these, in this, you know, wild and crazy process? So it's interesting because if you look just strictly at the polls, which are off obviously, you know, your first choice, Elizabeth Warren has been kind of languishing around 15%, which is not great compared to, you know, Bernie and Biden up in the 20s in more recent polls. But as a second choice pick, I think that Warren has been very smart in uh, positioning herself as, you know, a sort of unity candidate who can bridge the gap between the Bernie supporters and the Biden supporters, who wants to make a lot of changes in the United States, but also, you know, doesn't want to fundamentally tear down the system. And so I think that, if, you know, her people can really convince Iowans at these various precincts that, yeah, I know that your first choice looks a little wobbly right now, but Warren is really the person who can both, you know, fulfill your candidate's promises, but also, you know, move the country forward in a way that really works. I think that she has a strong chance of surprising a lot of people. That said, Iowa is nuts. It is an absolutely wild system. I honestly cannot say how many more pr- Democratic primaries we'll have with the caucus system Consider or, you know, Iowa as the first in the nation, considering a lot of the concerns out there about, A, this weird process and how, you know, people – a lot of people cannot stay and caucus for the entire night that is necessary. And B, you know, it's a very wide state. So between those two things, Iowa, I'm wondering if 2020 is its last time in the sun like this. Uh, Julie Pace, before we wrap up, the president of the United States, uh, while, uh, you know, still waiting his verdict in the trial, headed to Iowa and campaigned there and talked about what a great job he's doing and reminisced about winning in 2016. What was he doing in Iowa and uh, uh, what is he achieving there? two things that the president was trying to do there. You know, we talk a lot about the Democratic caucus in Iowa, but there actually is a Republican caucus on Monday as well. And so one of the things that Trump was trying to do is actually just test the strength of his organization. Unlike in 2016, he has a well-funded, very professional campaign, and they're going to try to use the the non-competitive GOP caucus on Monday to try to test their their ability to bring people out uh, and to try to try to mobilize supporters. The other thing he was really trying to do is he was trying to draw attention away from the Democrats. Democrats and he was trying to uh, play pundit. He was he was assessing their strengths, their weaknesses. Uh, we know that Trump is following this race really closely, and we love getting his insights on it. Pundit in chief. Well, my apology to my uh, Huckleberry and Hawkeye friends in Iowa. Uh, setting us straight, Julie Pace, Washington bureau chief from the Associated Press. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've also been uh, hearing from Hayes Brown, he's senior reporter and editor for BuzzFeed and host of Impeachment Today's podcast. Hayes, thanks. Thank you so much. You can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org, and you can follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Daum, Eileen Amata, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Grace Tatter, Adam Waller, and Sydney Wertheim, with help from Carolyn Love and Bradley Noble. Me, I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. 